You're listening to CMPA, Practically Speaking. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Yolanda Madarnas. And I'm Stephen Valmar. It's nice to be here with you again. It's good to see you again, Stephen. So what are we talking about today? Well, Yolanda, we thought we would talk about resource utilization and wait time management. Hmm. Well, this isn't a new topic to physicians, but it is timely because there's renewed interest and concern about this topic given the COVID-19 related postponement of elective procedures and such. Absolutely. You know, wait times, we know, have an impact on physicians, the patients and the system. Mm -hmm. So today we hope to give you some tips on safe management of wait times in order to promote safe care and decrease your medical legal risk. But you know what, Yolanda, before we get going, I have a special surprise for you. Oh, I like surprises. We have a guest on this show. Do tell. Well, let's take a listen. Who's on the show with us? I'm Wendy Levinson. I'm a general internist, and I am the chair of Choosing Wisely Canada. Um, it's my pleasure to uh, be with the CMPA today for the podcast. What a great surprise. You know, I thought you'd like that. We actually spoke to Dr. Levinson uh, via a webinar interview just a few days ago. And as you'll hear from her, I think that Choosing Wisely Canada's message is actually going to be very helpful in this context of resource management and waitlist management. And it does align well with our objective of promoting safe care. Yeah, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So managing wait times is not a new issue for Canadian physicians, but the magnitude of the problem is. For sure. In a post-COVID-19 world, it's expected that there's going to be a gradual movement to return to pre-pandemic level medical services, whatever that is going to be. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now we face a huge backlog of postponed elective care that's going to be really difficult to manage. Absolutely. And will it fall on physicians to determine which medical services should be reintroduced first and how care should be prioritized in their own practices? Well... I guess the answer is yes and no. Not really the physicians by themselves, uh, for sure. I think we're going to be told to some extent by public health uh, hospitals and regional health authorities what to do. But for the physicians, there's likely going to be a responsibility, both the consultant and the referring physician in the example of wait times to see a consultation, for the physicians, uh, both referring doctor and the consultant, to address the wait and contribute in some way to making it as safe as possible. So we have three take-home messages then for today's podcast, Stephen. First one would be to be aware of and follow the direction of the ministries of health, the chief medical officers of health, our uh, regulatory bodies, the colleges, and the institutions that we're working in. Right. Uh, The second take-home message, of course, would be to keep the lines of communication open with your patients to allay their concerns and to monitor the patient's clinical condition. And the third takeaway would be to strive to collaborate with other healthcare providers and administrators to appropriately manage what are scarce resources and wait lists during this time period. You know, Yolanda, in general, physicians are expected to consider what's in the best interests of their patient. The context of the situation, however, is going to be a significant consideration in making that decision. Absolutely. So it may mean making decisions that are proportionate to the system's capacity while minimizing potential harm and trying to keep the priority of your patient's best interest in mind and striking a balance between those two. That's right. So why don't we go to take home point number one then? Mm-hmm. That is to be aware and to follow the direction, the directives of the various uh, bodies, the ministries of health, the chief medical officers, the colleges, and uh, and even the institutions that we work in. 
And to do so, it's important, of course, to stay aware of what's going on in your area. Uh, the various um, authorities aren't going to tell you who to see first. You'll need to figure that out on your own. But to some extent, help may be available from your specialty societies, um, uh, consensus groups, your colleagues. Maybe even local medical associations, yep, for instance. absolutely. So to a large extent, it'll be based on common sense, Yes. however, yes. right? So as we said before, uh, wait times, longer wait times aren't unique to COVID, but the importance of these is just brought to light uh, by the situation that we've been that we've been through. And it's important to try to have fair and universal criteria for deciding on how the triage goes about. Absolutely. And to clearly communicate to your patients and to your referral base what those criteria are. So with this in mind, um, Dr. Levinson has an interesting take on the issue of communicating with patients regarding these delays in care. Um, Let's listen to what Wendy has to say. Doctors don't wake up in the morning and think, I'll go into the office and order a bunch of unnecessary tests or treatments. So how does it happen? Well, you know, there are many reasons. We might order a test that we think is not necessary because we think the patient wants it. Often it's just our routine or habits. We learn even in our medical training and throughout our career to do certain things and we don't change those patterns very often. We might be afraid of uncertainty and so we order more tests or treatments and certainly as the CMPA well knows, physicians are often afraid that they might be sued if they miss something and so they order more tests to, quote, leave no stone unturned. But, you know, it's quite interesting what's happened during the time of COVID because now many doctors are having visits with patients virtually. And so in that circumstance, if you're concerned and you can't examine someone, you might order a chest x-ray that normally you wouldn't order. Or what we hear a lot from doctors is they're ordering antibiotics where they know that they aren't particularly useful, it's a viral infection, but they're just covering all the bases because they can't see the patient. So we might order unnecessary tests or treatments in this virtual situation just to be sure. It's natural for patients who are waiting to be anxious. I mean, they're asking themselves the question, is this delay going to be bad for my health? And so they're worried. And so I think it's extremely important that physicians have these conversations with patients and tell them what the delay is and how long it's going to be and what they should expect. But I think an extremely helpful question is ask a patient, what are you most concerned about in this delayed period? And listen to what they say to you, because some of their concerns you may be able to allay, you may be able to reassure, or you'll understand better what they're most worried about. And then you can discuss options. So it's really to be able to communicate openly, discuss the options, understand what they're worried about, and reassure patients, or if there's something urgent, then to get it moved up more quickly because it really is needed and the delay would not be in the patient's best interest. The worst thing to do is to not have those conversations because that will leave patients very anxious and feel abandoned. So then choosing wisely really relies on everyone making wise choices. Otherwise, the system falls apart and doesn't benefit. That's right. And you know how Wendy was talking about when something is urgent, you get it moved up. Well, that's the key, isn't it? If we're utilizing all the resources in a less wise than desirable manner, then 
we might not be able to move things up urgently. So I think it's very, it is very interesting how Dr. Levinson makes the link between how we order tests and how um, why we do so as a result of the shift to virtual care. Uh, that message about good explanations for patients, of course, uh, leads well into our second take-home message, doesn't it? It sure does. And uh, remember, that was to keep the lines of communication open with our patients so that we can explore and address their concerns and monitor their clinical condition. That's right. You know, this message is actually about what happens before you meet the patient, but after they've been put on your wait list if you're a consultant, or what happens after you've sent the patient off for a consultation, but before they get seen mm -hmm. if you're a family doc. And and it's really not just about communication between the referring doc and the, uh, and the consultant, but also we have have to remember the patient, right? This really is a triad whenever there's a consultant that's waiting. So then it's multi-directional communication. And it's true that patients are likely to become more and more aware of the issue of increased wait times after COVID, and it's conceivable that they might have begun to feel abandoned. So communication about the issue can really help engage uh, proactively with the physician. Um, but it is going to require a certain agility and nimbleness on the part of the physician because fundamentally we want to avoid our patients feeling abandoned. Of course, and the reality is that you likely owe a duty of care to the patients that are on a wait list. Even if you're the consultant, you haven't seen them yet, but more, even more likely if you're the referring physician and you did see them. So Absolutely. both physicians have that Absolutely. relationship. And we've seen this in a number of cases over the years, long before COVID happened. So you're expected to provide sufficient information to the patient so that they can identify signs and symptoms that require a call or a reevaluation. That's right. You want to make sure if you haven't yet triaged your consults, that the clinical details that were received, say, three, six months ago when the consult was made are actually still up to date. Yep. And, you know, we need to ensure that the patient has adequate instructions as to what to do if their condition changes. So it could involve communications with any number of people, the referring physician, the patient, other healthcare providers, their families. What you really want, in fact, is to avoid being unaware of significant signs and symptoms that are going on and to be blindsided, so to speak, by a case. So this is relevant at all times and in all circumstances anyway. Longer wait lists due to COVID and maybe modified approaches rising out of ministry or hospital directives. That's going to mean that we will have to be wiser and spend more time and attention on this issue. But you know, in the end, if a resource is scarce and we have to defer seeing some patients longer than we'd like, it's really not going to be easy to do, right? No, it goes it goes against our, our nature to some to some degree. So, you know, of course not. But having to manage these resources means having to balance the individual patient's needs versus the need to manage a resource for the broader society. And that is not easy. We spoke to uh, Dr. Levinson uh, about this. We discussed her thoughts on discussing resource scarcity with patients. And uh, I think her insights were quite good. Let's take a listen. I think it is very important that physicians take care of the patient in the room and not at that moment, think about the pressures on the system or society. We don't ration at the bedside. We take care of the patient in front of us. And so I think when we're talking with patients, we need to discuss their needs. And if their symptom or problem is not urgent and can wait for that MRI, then that is appropriate for that patient. And we really like to encourage patients to ask four questions. 
Do I really need this test or treatment? What are the downsides? Are there simpler, safer options? And what if I do nothing? And we think those four questions really help answer patients' concerns and have the conversation that is needed between the physician and the patient to make those decisions together. Outside the exam room, I think it's very important for physicians to work with their local leaders that might be at hospitals or primary care clinics with their government to think about how we reintroduce services after this time of COVID. We, of course, have big backlogs in need for operating room space, for uh, delivering chemotherapy, for use of imaging procedures, and even also in primary care where we have to think about what are the priorities there. And I think in that context, physicians need to work together to think about, okay, how do we prioritize which patients really need these services first and which can wait? And that's where we think about the limited resources and how we use them most wisely. But in the exam room with the patient, it should be about that patient and what they need, whether they can wait for their imaging or whether it's more urgent. And this makes me think about the importance of managing other healthcare providers' expectations as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. It actually links up to take home point number three, I think. Yeah, which is collaborate with other healthcare providers and administrators to appropriately manage these scarce resources and the wait lists. Exactly what Wendy said. If there's no clear guidance for the work you do, be an active participant in the process and try to actually get consensus among your colleagues. So being an active participant to come up with an approach in your community to make judicious use of scarce resources is not just good for your patients and promote safe care, but it can actually do wonders for your own wellness. Right. Taking control over what you can control is great for actually feeling useful and and, and it's empowering uh, for us to feel like we we can actually have an ability to take good care of our patients. In the end, we are experts in our patient population's needs. And what better way to use that expertise than to help influence policy development? So reaching out to others in the system that we see as key players um, in unlocking a resource, so to speak, can actually help to lead innovative uh, solutions. But the secret is in how we do it, Mm -hmm. right? Advocacy done right can do wonders, but done with too much passion, shall we say, it can turn others off and your ideas will fall on deaf ear. We need to be careful not to come across as disruptive, but rather as collaborative. Let's take this a step further um, and thinking that innovative grassroots solutions could actually lead to a better functioning system by shifting and reallocating services. And in fact, that's what Wendy told us. Using Wisely is a campaign that started six years ago in Canada And the goal was really to engage clinicians, mainly physicians, in trying to address the problem of overuse of unnecessary tests and treatments. And one of the things that Choosing Wisely is based on is a grassroots, ground-up creation of these recommendations from physicians about what test treatments and procedures are not really needed. COVID actually offers an interesting opportunity for us to reflect on things we do that don't add value. So if you think about it, if we have limited resources in our MRI machines, for example, and we don't do 
imaging for low back pain unless red flags are present, which is one of the recommendations, then those patients are not using a resource that is really unnecessary. So this frees up operating room space and resources that can be used to do other things like hip replacements, which we know have a huge impact on quality of life. So there are many things in our system where if we use the resources more cautiously and eliminate those that don't add value, it creates capacity in our system for things that really do matter. So in some ways, this new phase we're in is an opportunity for reflection and potential change. So value-added care helps patients, helps us as clinicians, by promoting the likelihood the resource is available when you actually need it. And it helps the system by decreasing strain. So money allocated to one resource needlessly can be shifted and added to a resource that is much more in need, for example. So thinking back to the COVID-19 crisis and the scarcity of personal protective equipment, for instance, what we did was actually choose wisely how to go about using it. And it was because we knew we were going to run out if we didn't do that, uh, if we weren't going to be wise about it. While there wasn't a choosing wisely guideline on PPE, the principle was there. COVID led us to rethink our use of personal protective equipment out of necessity, mind you, but really the analogy I think is valid for wait times nonetheless. So in the end, you know, we know managing wait times and resources is not easy. No, of course not. But it is our responsibility to be aware of guidelines and to consider them. Our approach needs to be evidence-informed through guidelines, the standard of care, our local context, and our own expertise. And those are four lenses through which to view the evidence and to make decisions, isn't it? Yeah, and it's really about principles and a framework for decision-making, not stringent, hard, fast, carved-in-stone rules. With an eye to balancing the needs of both the individual patient and the patient population in the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we have to wrap things up, Stephen. Time for a communication tip. Sure. I would say it's important to communicate purposefully. And that means to clarify the roles for the patient care while the patient is on the wait list. And that, by that, of course, I mean between the referring physician and the consulting physician. As well as the patient, that tri-directional That's right. communication path. Yeah, we can't make the patient responsible for managing their, their wait times and whatnot, they, but they do need to be aware. And for a documentation tip then, Stephen, um, let's document what lens we used to make our choice. Uh, which one of those principles are you basing your reasonableness on? That's right. Well, that's a very good point. And I think that unfortunately, we're at the end of our, uh, of our allotted time. Um, I want to take the time to thank uh, Dr. Levinson for, uh, for taking the moment to uh, share her thoughts with us. It's a great opportunity. And I hope the uh, audience enjoys it. And we certainly appreciate it. That's for sure. So with that, uh, goodbye, everybody. I'm Stephen Belmar. And I'm Yolanda Madarnas. And remember, when you look at things differently, the things you look at change. These learning materials are for general educational purposes only and are not intended to provide professional medical or legal advice, nor to constitute a standard of care for Canadian healthcare providers. Mm -hmm.